You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight is going to be another episode in the Salamander series, which has been a series of episodes that have been running intermittently throughout the show, in which we're going to touch on some Salamander-specific content. Uh, I'd gotten feedback from you guys, of course. Um, People were looking for a little bit more varied uh, topics, something beyond frogs, the usual stuff that we cover. And I thought it would be fun to kind of continue the Salamander series. And tonight is going to be no exception. We're going to cover axolotls, but um, not in the way everyone thinks. We're going to talk about the axolotl's unique ability to regenerate limbs. And uh, who better to have than uh, an expert? And I'm going to be joined by Dr. Kate McCusker of the McCusker Lab. And she does a lot of work with salamanders and studies limb regeneration. And we're going to get into all that. But, um, of course, uh, you know, just to get started off, uh, again, I want to thank everyone for the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to support the show. Nice five-star review helps out a lot. And if you're interested in supporting the show, there's a couple of different ways you can do so. You can consider becoming a patron. On Patreon, I have a few different tiers. I have a tier as low as a dollar a month. So if you'd like to support the content, uh, check out those tiers. The $5 tier is the most popular. That'll get you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. And uh, as I've mentioned in the past, I've also partnered with In-Situ Ecosystems. I'm now an affiliate of theirs. So if you'd like a discount on an an In-Situ Terrarium, uh, check out the links in in the show description. And uh, you'll get a discount just by being a listener if you follow that link. So other than that, usual housekeeping aside, everything out of the way, uh, Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. How are you doing tonight? Hi, Dan. I'm doing well. Thanks for the invitation to connect with you. It's my pleasure. I'm glad that we uh, we finally got to, finally got in touch. It seems like like months ago that I, I reached out to you. <laughs> I know time seems to be moving very strangely, though, in in pandemia. So that's how it goes. <laughs> Why don't we start off with you? Tell us your story. Now you're a scientist, but what were some of your early experiences with the natural world like, and how did you end up with a career in science today? Oh, okay. Well, um, it's a long story, so I'll try to be you know, somewhat succinct, but I, I've definitely always been really into biology. When I was a child, I was really lucky to grow up essentially in the woods um, in Massachusetts, Um, We had a pond in my backyard that had bullfrogs and I would love to go down there and catch them and tip over rocks and find salamanders. And so I definitely had an early obsession with amphibians and kind of anything creepy crawly. And my grandparents also lived in Cape Cod. And so I would just love going through the tide pools and, and seeing what kind of squishy things were there that I could play with. Um, so I, I had an obsession pretty early on with biology because it's just, you know, interesting and cool and beautiful. And I think, you know, I, I was really not knowing how to pursue a career in biology and just generally interested in science. So when I actually started um, my undergraduate training and at just a local, a great little lo- local uh, college, um, Bridgewater State College is now Bridgewater State University, I was actually convinced by some of my friends uh, in the department to start my undergraduate career in chemistry. So rather than biology, I jumped into chemistry. Um, I, I, you know, completed my degree in chemistry. Um, and my idea at the time was actually to study drug design and to develop drugs. Um, I had lost a, a family member to cancer, and I think that was partially my inspiration for that. 
And um, so I had, I joined a couple labs to do internships and I was a technician in a, in a lab in the nuclear medicine department at Mass General Hospital um, and got some really good like hands-on research experience. And after that point, I was kind of like, okay, I want to, I want to drive the ship myself. And so I decided to um, start my PhD and I did that at UMass Amherst. Um, and I started off in a chemistry lab, really wanting to study drug design, and I figured it out fairly early on um, as I was working on chemistry, and I was doing well, but I figured out that it wasn't really satisfying me, and I felt that I really wanted to learn more about biology, and um, serendipitously, there was a new faculty that had just joined the department at UMass Amherst, uh, Dominique Alfandari, and uh, he studied craniofacial development in Xenopus lavis and the African clawed frog. And I saw him give a talk and the first slide that he had projected up and it was this huge arena, this like, you know, huge screen in the background. And he had, uh, maybe 100 em embryos projected up on the screen. And they were, um, they, it started off as a single celled embryo and it was a time lapse and you could see these embryos kind of synchronously dividing, um, just these pulses of like cell division that were happening. And I was just, I, I didn't know what was going on. I, I, you know, I didn't have any training in development biology, all I knew really was anything to do with chemistry. But I just thought that that was the most beautiful thing. And superficially enough, I was like, if I could see something like that every day of my career, I would be happy. And I managed to convince Dominique to uh, let me switch out of the lab that I was in and join his lab. Uh, he took a chance on me. And um, it was pretty much like boot camp. <laughs> he was, he's a very intense, like, French man. And uh, he, he doesn't hand out many compliments. And it was, it was definitely a steep learning curve uh, to be in his lab. And, um, but, you know, I, I, I managed to pick it up. And I did my PhD work um, studying craniofacial development, the molecular interactions that kind of drive that process in frogs. Um, and it was super fun and super hard. And I learned so much. Um, and then um, during that process, I also started learning and, and reading a lot about other developmental processes that happen, not just like how the face develops in frogs, but, you know, other things that, that develop over time. And I became really fascinated by animals that had this ability to develop, you know, really complex structures as adults. I just thought it was just totally wild that, you know, there were some animals that could kind of reinitiate these processes that normally only happen in embryos. And I think the reason why it was just so interesting to me is that, you know, with the embryo, it's almost easier because you're starting with a clean slate and you're just adding like complexity onto that. But with, you know, like regeneration, for example, you're starting off with old cells <laughs> that already know what they're going to be and, or what they are, essentially. And somehow you need to make changes in those cells to wipe the slate clean, at least to some degree, so that then they can reinitiate, you know, this process that that happens um, normally only in the embryo. Um, and so I, I tried to figure out, you know, where I wanted to do this. 
And um, there are lots of labs studying regeneration in, in many different model organisms, you know, flat worms, um, you know, the, lots of different things, uh, sea stars and, and all sorts of stuff. But I was always drawn to amphibians. And so I was looking really to join a lab that was working with an amphibian model. And on the very top of my list um, was this lab in Southern California um, of David Gardner and Susan Bryant. And um, they were, they've really been huge pioneers in the field of limb regeneration. Most of their, they have worked on many different aspects of regeneration, but a lot of kind of their, their really important stuff um, has focused on how the missing blueprint of the of the regenerating limb um, is established. And I, I became really obsessed with this question, even just as a graduate student, not even studying it yet, because I, it just seems so interesting to me that, you know, when you amputate the limb on an amphibian, that it knows ex to replace exactly what's missing, right? Like it makes a unique blueprint depending on where it's amputated. I just thought like, how does it know? How does it know to replace exactly what's missing? And so I, I managed to get into this amazing postdoctoral lab. I, I stayed there as an American Cancer Society fellow um, for I think it was like five or six years. And at that point I had really developed, you know, my own independent research program um, that I was like ready to, you know, set up and kind of launch out on my own. Um, and so I started applying for faculty positions um, so that I could, you know, open my own lab in, in academia and um, locked down a position back in Massachusetts, you know, where everything kind of started um, at UMass Boston. And so I launched my lab at UMass Boston in the biology department um, back in 2015. And um, I've had a lot of students come through the lab. Uh, lots of people are super excited about studying limb regeneration. So, um, you know, I've been very, very lucky uh, to be able to kind of pursue my dream that I kind of didn't know, <laughs> you know, it kind of shaped itself along the journey, I guess, and, and, and you know, positively impact, you know, students along the way. It's interesting how life takes us in, in certain directions, you know, um, you start off with one idea of what you're going to do and then life kind of takes you to this place and you think this is, this is right for me. This is where I've kind of needed to be all along. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, sometimes we just need to flounder a little bit because that helps us really figure out who we are or who we are not. <laughs> so, you know, I think that, you know, it's okay to have a journey that you don't know where it's going to go. You'll get there. Yeah, it definitely makes it more interesting. I'm curious about your lab. Can you you want to tell us a little bit about what kind of research you're doing there today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, so I work with the Mexican axolotl model. We focus primarily on limb regeneration, although the axolotl can regenerate lots of different structures. We have a lot of different projects going on in the lab, but we have two kind of big streams of focus. The first stream is really focused on the changes that are happening in the mature tissues of the limb after, you know, an injury has happened, like an amputation has happened, that make those mature limb cells capable of regenerating a missing structure. Um, and then the second major area of focus that, um, that we're working on is figuring out how 
the size of the regenerating limb is regulated. Um, and so, yeah, there's a long story behind why we went down there. there was, that wasn't actually an original focus of my lab. Um, and it, it, it's something new that we're really excited about. We have some very cool data on it. Um, so, but those are kind of the two major directions that my lab is taking right now. It is interesting. And, and it's one of the things that about your research that I found particularly fascinating. And it's going to sound really silly, but, um, and this is going to kind of sound like out of left field, but you guys kind of know I'm a little bit, little bit out there. I had, <laughs> um, in my own studies, I had looked into limb regeneration and whatnot, just because it was a you know, matter I was, I was curious about. And um, a couple of months ago, I, I lost the, I lost the end of my fingertip. Um, I, I was, oh yeah, well, it, it, it grew back. Cause I, from what I understand, the tips of human fingers can, the only mm -hmm. parts of a body that can really regenerate. And what was most interesting to me was, I mean, I'm 43. It, it grew back with my, um, you know, it, it grew back a 43 year old person's thumb. It didn't grow back like a baby or, so how does it know? I mean, it may sound silly, but how does it know to reform exactly the way it was before. You know what I mean? Why wouldn't it start out as uh, as like an infant's tissue or, or an older person's tissue or complete scar tissue? It's just one of those things that kind of aroused my curiosity. And um, I know that your research with, uh, I guess, the regeneration of, of, of older cells versus, um, I guess, I mean, you, you kind of direct me in terms of what the proper terms would be, but I guess um, almost like like infant cells or, or I guess fetal cells or stem cells versus uh, established older cells. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the, the questions that you're asking are really, really good ones and are definitely ones that we don't have very good answers to. Um, I, I actually do have um, a project going on in the lab that's really focused on aging and like the impact of of aging on regenerative processes in the axolotl model. We don't have any of that published yet, but um, you know, I mean, the axolotl ages, just like we age, um, they still are able to kind of maintain their regenerative abilities as they get older, but things are kind of slowed down. And you're right, like, I mean, when they regenerate, they regenerate a limb that's the appropriate size, you know, because the, the axolotl is an indefinitely growing species. And so, you know, throughout their entire life, they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, rather than regenerating a tiny little limb, like what would form on the embryo, for example, it forms this big limb that, you know, fits the proportionately appropriate size with the rest of the animal. Um, but I think, you know, we don't really have much in terms of data, you know, to answer those types of questions. But what I can tell you is that it seems like, you know, the cells basically lose properties of these like adult cells that, that, you know, they're derived from essentially and start to acquire properties that are more consistent with like embryonic cells or stem cells. They're not stem cells, but they're, they're, they are, you know, they do have properties that are kind of similar to stem cells. And then those cells regenerate, you know, the missing structure. And then it seems like that missing structure that now has formed. Um, it, I mean, they're, it's not exact. It doesn't look as exactly as old as the other 
tissues. It looks like the skin looks tighter, for example, than like an uninjured limb on an old animal. But then eventually it catches up. So I don't have any data on this. It's just kind of, you know, observations that we've made on the older animals. But it seems like, you know, maybe regeneration kind of resets the clock a little bit, but then the clock moves faster after regeneration is completed. But yeah, we we don't really have many answers to that question. I think one of the problems is that axolotl live for a really long time. So doing aging studies on the axolotl can be kind of a, a big undertaking. <laughs> but um, yeah, that might be part of it. Yeah, I, I like to discuss some of that data as well, because I, I have a few questions about that. But I, I'm just curious, first of all, why choose axolotls as a model organism for this type of research as opposed to another amphibian? Like, I mean, we discussed Xenopus or a different species of salamander. I mean, obviously the axolotl is its own species, but there's other species in Ambystema that are similar. Why gravitate towards the axolotl? What makes mm-hmm. it so unique? Yeah, well, I mean, the axolotl, like these other amphibians that you pointed out, is is a tetrapod, which means it walks on four legs, and humans are also tetrapods. And so, you know, understanding the bio- biology of regeneration in these in these amphibian species in general, I think, is more applicable, perhaps, um, than studying it in, you know, an invertebrate model. Um, although there are still really important things we can understand about regeneration from invertebrates. Um, I think one of the major things that's really great about the axolotl model is that it's really, really easy to breed in captivity. Um, whereas, you know, some of these other salamander models or or newt models are not as easy to do that. Um, And so, you know, we have these really active colonies that, you know, you can either purchase um, axolotl from. We do all of our in-house breeding so because we have a pretty high demand for um, animals to do our experiments. So, um, you know, that it just makes it really easy because you can, you can, you know, get the animals that you need to do the appropriate, you know, and for your experiments on. The the um, Xenopus model is also a really interesting model and, and anurans in general, like frogs are, are really interesting models to study regeneration because unlike uridal amphibians, like the axolotl, um, anurin amphibians lose the ability to regenerate once they initiate the process of metamorphosis. So if you amputate the limb off of like a, a you know pre-metamorphic um, frog larva, it can regenerate the entire limb, perfect you know in in structure and the tissue distribution, all that stuff. But if you amputate the limb off of a frog once it's initiated the process of regen or um, the process of metamorphosis, excuse me, um, it will essentially regenerate a structure, but it loses complexity. So you'll get something that looks more like a cartilaginous rod. And then after um, amputation, after you amputate an animal, when it's, you know, completed the process of metamorphosis, those animals basically just kind of heal the wound over and, you know, there may be scar tissue on the tip there. Um, So they completely lose the ability after metamorphosis. And so those, like the aneurin models, I think are very interesting because they're a wonderful model to study the loss of regenerability, whereas the axolotl, you know, these guys are able to regenerate throughout adulthood and as well as other um, 
uridyl amphibian. So, you know, that's, a, I think, another really strong pull towards the axolotl that, you know, they, they maintain this ability throughout their entire life. Um, and, and so we can ask questions like how does aging impact regenerative processes and things like that, that you wouldn't really be able to ask, you know, in other, um, other species of animals. Is the fact that they maintain their larval stage throughout their entire life cycle, is that in any way related to their regenerative abilities? Do, do you know? Um, there, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of people have asked this question and, you know, I think there is a little bit of controversy on what the right answer is. And I'll just tell you what I think. Um, but, but I just want to tell you that there are many opinions on this, but I would say my answer is no. And the reason for that is that you can actually, um, induce the axolotl to complete metamorphosis. And when you do, they still have regenerative abilities. Now there seems to be a little bit of variation in their regenerative abilities and it depends on the animal and it depends on how the wound heals. And I think part of that is because, you know, when the animal becomes terrestrial, there are lots of changes that happen in the skin. And these are not normal changes that would be happening in the axolotl because they're normally, you know, living their entire life in the water. And so I think that perhaps some of those changes that happen with the terrestrial life that the axolotl has not adapted to might be impacting um, regeneration. So it doesn't perfectly happen every time, but they still can regenerate a complete limb. It just, if, if everything is lined up appropriately it will get through the process and then on top of that you know we have other um you know terrestrial salamanders that can re that complete the process of metamorphosis and lose all of those larval characteristics and are also you know can regenerate either before or after metamorphosis completes so you know i don't i think that you know this is all kind of circumstantial <laughs> evidence that it really indicates that, you know, metamorphosis um, or, you know, these pedomorphic kind of um, characteristics of the axolotl are, are really not the reason why it has such a, a strong regenerative ability. Um, but I think it's also really hard to test in the lab <laughs> whether that's why or not. So um, I think the jury is still out. But but my answer to that question is no. It's 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 interesting, you know, what you mentioned about them retaining those, some of those abilities after they metamorphose, and it's it's funny you wouldn't expect that either. But I yeah. guess um, I guess there's a like you said, the jury jury's out. You never know what we're going to figure out next. <laughs> it's true, it's true, and you know, I should point out that you know there is really good evidence that indicates that mammals are capable of regenerating limb structures, like complex limb structures, not just digit tips in utero, like when we're embryos. And, and during the process of development, we lose that ability. Um, but it, it seems like, you know, we have this ability really, really, really early on to regenerate. And, and, you know, so I think figuring out why, you know, some animals lose regenerative ability as they age is really important. It's a valuable question that, you know, hopefully we'll be able to get some answers so that we could better tap into our kind of natural regenerative abilities. So here's my, one of my big questions and it's kind of open-ended, but can you walk us through regeneration step by step? Because like I said, I, I have a very limited understanding and just really for, for me and, and the listeners as well. Can you walk us through the whole process of limb, limb regeneration step by step from beginning to end? Sure. 
Okay, so um, limb regeneration obviously begins with an amputation of, uh, of the limb. And essentially what happens after the amputation is obviously there's some bleeding and things like that, um, but there will be a blood clot that forms at the tip. Um, and then within hours um, after the amputation is made, there's a very thin skin that forms from the epidermis layer um, and it's called the wound epithelium and it covers up that severed surface of the limb. Um, and then the second kind of major thing that happens is that the um, severed tips of the nerves that happened, you know, when you amputate the, the limb, um, over the next few days, the axons from those severed nerves start to regenerate and they innervate all of that wounded tissue and the wound epithelium. And there are these kind of molecular signals that are happening between those axons that have regenerated and that wound epithelium tissue um, that basically activate a signaling center, a molecular signaling center. And so, in, in the interesting thing is that that signaling center is very, very similar um, in the types of molecules that it generates and the activities that it does as a, a very similar structure that is formed on the embryo when the embryo is making a limb. Um, and so that nerve interacting with the overlying um, wound epithelium seems to be important for kind of initiating the recapitulation of development, of limb development. So we have the nerve now interacting with the wound epithelium and we have the um, induction of that specialized signaling center and the, the molecular kind of um, signals that are coming from that signaling center are now being received by that underlying mature tissue that's left over in the stump, like all, that, all those leftover old cells. Um, and those signals are the ones that are responsible for kind of turning the clock back in those cells so that now they're starting to lose, you know, different characteristics of those adult cell types and starting to acquire characteristics that are more consistent with like embryonic cells or a little bit more consistent with stem cells. Um, and those signals also start to promote those cells to start dividing. And so now you have dividing cells that are kind of more naive or more plastic, so to speak. Um, and then, and so that structure there where you have these kind of undifferentiated cells or naive cells is called the blastema. And over time, that blastema will continue to grow because you have a lot of cell proliferation going on. And there will start to be new signals that are playing out um, within those cells that are dividing and still coming from the overlying epidermis. And essentially um, those signals are gonna start telling the cells where, what they're gonna become and where they're gonna be located. This is a process that's called pattern formation. Um, and so it's basically drawing the blueprint. The cells are now drawing the blueprint using molecules to do that. And so once the blueprint is starting to be established, um, then the cells start to undergo a process of differentiation. And so this is when they decide what type of cell they're gonna be, whether it's a muscle cell or a bone cell or a connective tissue cell or what have you, a limb cell. And they start to divide, um, decide what they're gonna be and then they start to differentiate. And so that's when they lose those embryonic like properties 
and start to acquire adult cell properties. And this process kind of continues gradually going from the stump tissue all the way up to the very tip of the regenerate until all of the missing structures are replaced. So it's kind of like this gradual process. And then you get this perfect limb that has all of the missing structures, all of the missing tissues. The only problem is it's really, really tiny. <laughs> so if you look at an animal that has an amp had completed regenerating, at least the blastema stages of regeneration on one side, and if you compare that regenerating limb to the other side, it's super tiny. It might be, you know, um, a centimeter long while the unamputated limb might be seven centimeters long or something like that. And so what happens after you get that perfectly formed little limb is that that tiny limb grows really, really, really fast um, until it reaches the appropriate size and then the light switch goes off and it slows down and starts growing at the same rate as the rest of the animal. Um, so kind of, there's a lot of details in between, but more or less that's the, the process in entirety. How does a limb know how to regenerate properly? Like if you sever a limb, say at a different, a different joint, like let's just say that you remove a digit, you remove, um, I guess, well, what's the scientific term for an axolotl's hand? Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, or, autopod is what we call it. But <laughs> perfect, perfect. Hand. Uh, and then say at the elbow or the shoulder, how does it know how to regenerate properly? Is it just sort of this, um, like this process, like you said, um, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm oversimplifying it, but um, almost like everything kind of starts over from scratch and then as it develops, then they, the cells decide how to, how to function properly or... You're right. It, it is that, but that doesn't explain how the limb knows or how the blastema knows to replace exactly what's missing, which I think is at the heart of the question that you're asking. So, um, so essentially there are the cells throughout our bodies and throughout the axolotl bodies. There are some cells that know where they are. So for example, you have cells at the very tip of your finger and cells close to your elbow and cells close to your shoulder that know that they're in those locations. And these are cells that are kind of scattered throughout our connective tissues. And, it, and there are basically connective tissues surrounding all of our major tissues in the body. And so those cells are kind of the ones that are reminding all of these other cells where they are and to behave like where what they should behave like in that location. And it turns out that these cells that have, we call it positional memory, um, are the ones that draw the blueprint of the missing structures. We don't know how they draw the blueprint, but we know that they are the ones that do it. And so you essentially need to have cells um, from different locations on the limb, cells that came from these connective tissues interacting with each other in the blastema. And those are the ones that are gonna draw the blueprint. And because when you amputate a limb, you have cells that are you know, from that particular position on the limb, are those are the ones that are communicating, this is where we are. Those are the ones that are gonna draw the pattern of what's missing. So I, I don't know if the, <laughs> that was an overly complicated question or answer to your question, but, um, but more or less, it's, it's because the, the cells that are in the stump tissue know where they are. 
and they can use that information somehow to draw the blueprint of a missing structure. You answered my question perfectly. That was great. That was perfect. Okay. I'm cur- I'm curious though about, and I'm I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball here. I've mm-hmm. noticed that in some research, an axolotl's limb will be removed, and I'm not quite sure the process, but I don't know if it's transplanted to another part of the body or whatnot. But I've seen. Um, photographs and articles and whatnot about axolotls developing limbs on other parts of the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you enlighten us a little bit about about that? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so, I mean, there are some like really, so back in the 60s and stuff where they did all sorts of like freaky kind of uh, Frankensteinian type experiments. There's a lot of manipulations like that. And so, um, you know, I, I'm familiar with some of that old literature and I, I've seen pictures or, or at least cartoons of limbs growing out of eye sockets and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's possible to do that. We actually have a little bit of experience doing that in my own lab. Um, so we can grow limbs, well, kind of anywhere, um, as long as you have some limb tissue. And so we we're we one of the experiments that we do a lot in our lab, or tools, I should say, it's not an experiment, um, is we can induce like an extra limb to form the side of a limb. And we can also induce an extra limb to form kind of on the flank of the animal. And again, all you need is kind of the basic components of limb regeneration. And that is, you know, you need a, a wound um, environment. You need signaling from the nerve to generate that specialized wound epithelium. And then you need limb cells from different positions on the limb to be in that environment. And essentially, if you have those three really basic components, um, that is sufficient to make a limb kind of anywhere you want to on the axolotl. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And actually it's kind of funny. Um, Kaylee, uh, Kaylee Wells, who is um, a PhD student in my lab who just finished up. Um, she was doing one of these such experiments where she was basically inducing, um, an extra limb to form on the flank of the animal by doing those, you know, grafting manipulations that I just told you about. And um, we had not really asked the question of whether those extra limbs are functional because we we don't really do functional studies. We are like, we're really kind of hardcore molecular biologists. So we're looking at molecules, but of course we get those questions all the time when we, you know, give seminars and stuff. And I remember one time walking in the lab and I literally saw Kaylee jump out of her socks and she went, and I was like, oh my gosh, what happened? And so I ran over and she goes, it moved. And I went and I looked at the animal that she, you know, her experimental animal that had an extra limb and that extra limb was swimming along with the rest of the limbs, you know, kind of moving along just like the other ones do. Um, And we just, you know, we were in stitches laughing about it because, well, mostly laughing about her reaction. But I mean, now we really had a very clear answer to whether those extra limbs are functional or not, because, you know, not non-functioning limbs don't swim. That's incredible. I'm just trying to picture. I mean, obviously, axolotls have li- limited perception of the world around them. But I wonder, like, how do you perceive something like that? Like, do like now I'm going to move my fifth leg? Is it is it a conscious behavior? Is it's just it's so it's oh, so gosh. wild and out there. That's amazing. I know. I know how the wiring must work in the brain and how yeah, just how like the biology of coordinating that. Like, how does that happen? It's just, yeah, there, there's lots of questions, you know, that we need to know answers to. Um, but yeah, it was fun. 
One of the things I was always curious about about that that type of research was, I guess, really the practicality of it. Because if you could regrow a limb, wouldn't you want to regrow the limb where it had been removed and not? I mean, I'm just thinking in terms of like human purposes. I mean, let's just say for argument's sake, I lost my leg below the knee. I, I don't. I would want it there. I wouldn't want it coming out of my back. I. I I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the reason why we do those types of experiments is not just not to be weird, right? Like we're trying to understand other things. And so, you know, in in the in the example that I gave you, Kaylee's Kaylee's story, we were really trying to figure out whether we could manipulate the size of the regenerate. You know how I told you how the regenerate starts really, really small and then grows super fast. We were trying to figure out whether signals from the neurons are impacting that. And so um, she was basically doing grafting experiments of blastemas from different sized animals and grafting those blastemas over to either large animals or small animals that had different sized nerves to see whether she can kind of manipulate the resulting, the end product, so to speak, of um, of the regenerate, like the size of that. Um, and yeah, and so she was, this was basically her way of, of being able to do this grafting experiment on super tiny animals because the limbs on the small animals were so small that they couldn't actually take the blastema from the large animal because it was like huge, you know, compared to the limbs. So she, she grafted those over to the flank. So, you know, we, we can do these kind of weird experiments, um, and leverage, the ability of the axolotl to basically, you know, grow a limb wherever you want it to grow a limb, as long as you have, as long as you put in that environment, you know, those those kind of three basic criteria to make a limb, and um, and answer, you know, really important questions about the biology of regeneration by doing that. Yeah, I see. That's it, it. Is it's still pretty interesting. I I'm yeah. curious about about growth, and it's it's interesting that you you brought that up because I wanted to ask you about the growth rate of, legen- of regenerated limbs. We, we talked about a few factors, but w- what are some circumstances that would affect the growth, la- the growth rate of regenerated limbs? I know you mentioned before that uh, they'll start out really, really small and then they'll rapidly catch up and then, then level off. Can you work us through, uh, walk us through that process? Yeah. Um, well, I can start off by telling you that growth rate... Um, it seems to be impacted by the size of the animal. So the larger the animal, the um, faster, well, no, excuse me, the smaller the animal, the faster the growth rate. So it takes much less time to be able to regenerate a missing limb structure. Um, But getting back to your question, which is how the growth of that like kind of later stage regenerate, that tiny limb, how that's regulated, so um, it turns out that signals that are coming from the neuro- the neurons that innervate the limb are are responsible for regulating the growth. And right now we're really trying to get at the, the heart of like the molecular mechanism underlying that. All we know is that it's the neurons that are doing that. So so that's you know kind of a, a question that we've just started scratching the surface of. It's interesting how it's the neurons. I would have expected it to have been something, I guess, on a, I don't know. I, I never would have expected that, that neurons would be so sophisticated to be able to to uh, determine growth and whatnot. I always figured that would have been like, um, I guess, like a hormone thing or something like yeah. that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, you, you have a good kind of um, instinct because 
in most animals, it is hormonally driven. So, you know, in humans, for example, you know, when we have when we undergo puberty, right? And we have this like huge growth spurt, that's all initiated by hormone signaling. Um, and so that's kind of the typical thing that people would initially think of in terms of regulating growth. But I think the trick in this instance of regeneration is that it's not the whole animal that's growing quickly. It's only that limb. So how do you regulate growth specifically in that tissue that needs to grow really, really fast? Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it's the neurons. And, I, and the other kind of interesting part of that story is that the neurons actually need to be connected to the central nervous system to do that. So we can take neurons out from the spinal column, um, you know, the, the limb neurons, the ones that normally would be there, and we can support regeneration with that. But the regenerate doesn't grow to the appropriate size if we do that. So they're, you know, they're still, you know, neurotrophic signals, so to speak, that are coming from those neurons, but they are no longer capable of regulating size. They need to be connected with the CNS. And so that's another, I think, really important future direction um, that my lab is, is going to be undertaking uh, to try to answer that question. Like, where, where is that initial signal coming from? Where's the instruction coming from that says, no, grow faster, <laughs> stop growing, you're done. You know, where does that, that initial signal come from? It's not the nerves. It seems like the nerves are actually like a conduit for whatever that upstream signal is. Are there ever any incidents during a graft where the axolotl rejects the graft? Um, so... Uh, Graphs in amphibians, in general, amphibians are very, very, um, what's the word? They are forgiving <laughs> in terms of grafting. Um, usually, if they do reject, it's really, really slow. I have heard of some people saying that if you graft tissue um, from animals that were, were from within the same clutch, that the tissues seem to thrive better. And so maybe there is some kind of immune thing going on there where it's recognized or there's less, you know, recognition of non-self or something. But I, I, as far as I know, there's nobody that's really seriously looked at that. But yeah, the, the grafted tissue. So we do a lot of grafting experiments in my lab, all sorts of different stuff. But typically what we use is tissue from transgenic animals. So basically these are animals that have had a jelly, this, the DNA sequence for a jellyfish protein, uh, green fluorescent protein inserted into the axolotl genome. And essentially what that does, so the, the cells are glowing green. Uh, when you put it under UV light. And essentially what that does is it gives us kind of a breadcrumb trail, right? So when you graft in that tissue from a transgenic animal over to a non-transgenic animal, you can see what the cells are doing and you can make sure that, you know, the graft is surviving, you can see what the cells contribute to and all that good stuff. And it seems like, and, and you know, this is really just kind of my observations, nothing has been published, but it seems like grafts that are grafted to a regenerative environment that would result in like a complete regenerative product seem to stick around a lot longer than grafts that would not lead to regenerative response. And so I, you know, I think that 
there is something really interesting there about how the regenerative response is kind of manipulating the immune response so that the, um, you know, that the host animal is not really seeing that there is a, a graft of tissue that came from another animal there. Um, but yeah, why and how are, are big questions that we don't know the answer to. You know, every time I ask someone from the scientific community why amphibians make such perfect model organisms, I always learn something new. And that's incredible about being able to graft very, very easily from one individual to the other without the high risk of rejection that you would see in, in I guess, mammals and, I mean, especially humans. That's amazing. I never, I never in my wildest thoughts would I even thought that would have been a, would have been a thing. Yeah. Yeah. What what are some limitations to regeneration though? Like uh, for example, how many times can a limb be amputated before it's regenerated? Environmental stressors, stress on the animal. Like what are some factors that might inhibit regeneration? Yeah. Um so the the first aspect that you were kind of curious about in terms of the number of times the limb is regenerated. Um so there there is a little bit of controversy on this, but there is a paper that came out um, a few years ago, not that long ago, actually, um, that that showed that if you um, amputate the limb in the very same spot over and over again, that by the fifth time you amputate in that exact same spot, there's a population of animals that seem to lose the ability to regenerate their limb. And it, and when you look deeper into the tissue, it looks like rather than regenerating, the tissue is actually scarred over. Um, and But if you were to amputate that limb at a different location, they can regenerate just fine. So something about kind of you know, injuring um, the limb in the same location over and over again seems to exhaust the system in some way, um, and and we don't know why or how yet. But but there, I think you know, I think the the evidence is pretty clear that 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 is how things happen. Um, but you know, one way, like I said, to overcome that is just amputating different location, and that, you know, you're right back to where you started. So other factors that can kind of limit the process of regeneration. So definitely um, wound healing itself. So if the wound heals kind of in a funky way, so if the skin is pinching or something like that, the limb will regenerate, but you'll be missing some structures. Like you might be missing like a digit or two. Um, so that can, you know, be a limitation. And then, I think, you know, factors like nutrition and, you know, obviously if the animal's under stress, um, that could negatively impact um, whether they regenerate or not. I think in extreme cases, they wouldn't regenerate at all. And in, you know, just situations that are maybe moderately stressful, but not entirely, um, you know, they might regenerate, but have somewhat limited ability. Um, but there, there aren't that many studies out there. I think it's just our experience in the lab when we know an animal's not healthy, you know, our experience is that they don't regenerate very well. So we don't, you know, if an animal's not healthy, we don't amputate its limb. We make sure that it gets healthy before we do anything. So, What about a, a partial amputation? Meaning, let's just say that a, a limb or a digit wasn't completely amputated. Would that just heal normally as it's on its own? Or is there any possibility that uh, like, an, like an additional digit would form in the area where the partial amputation had taken place or 
is that how would that heal? Yeah, um, I think it depends on the injury and how much of like a connection there still is between like the severed tip, so to speak, and like the remaining tissue. Like if there's enough of a connection that that the that the you know the tip remains alive um then absolutely you'll get some type of regenerative response and typically what will happen is that you'll get like an extra structure and this is actually something that notoriously happens with the digits um so you it's very very easy to get like extra digits um if you have kind of an, an incomplete amputation so to speak um, but one important factor to making sure that happens in addition to um you know making sure that that tip stays alive is that the two ends of the wound can't fuse together because the wound epithelium is is an essential step to regeneration and if the two mature um, ends of come together then there's no wound epithelium that will form so yeah it's an interesting question there's some some really cool papers that came out in the 80s that show like all these cool ectopic limb structures that form from um from digit amputations it's really neat it's almost like having the the blueprints to the universe i guess if you could decipher all these all these situations all i mean i guess life is almost like everything is made up of certain ingredients and if you figure out how to arrange them properly you can do different things so yeah, it's just yeah. it's it's fascinating to think that somewhere out there there's i guess you know the ingredients for for perfect limb regeneration yeah yeah once you know the rules that's all you need <laughs> and it will, you'll activate the process and it will do it on its own yeah i'm curious about aging we, we talked about the aging process a little while ago and as i was going through some of your research preparing for tonight i i noticed that there was some research done about um, the aging process in, in axolotls. What role does aging have with regards to rene- uh, regeneration in axolotls? And is it similar to how humans age and how we sort of lose our abilities to, to heal properly as we get older? Uh, yes and no. So so the axolotl does age. They have a pretty long estimated lifespan at least of about 25 years. There are some people that estimate even longer than that. Um, So, you know, aging, it it takes a while in the axolotl model. Um, And there are some aspects that I I think it hasn't been studied extensively, but there are definitely some similarities with aging in axolotl and aging in humans. Um, you know, for example, there are like obvious changes in the skin tissues and the tissues themselves look very different as the animal gets older and older. There's a lot more connective tissue. The skin gets thicker. Um, the skin gets looser. <laughs> Not that the axolotl gets wrinkly, but kind of. Um, and another obvious um, change that happens in the axolotl is, is infertility, specifically in females. Like after about um, using them for three years as breeders, they generally don't have very good clutches after that point. And so we usually retire them after that point. Um, so, you know, obviously humans kind of um, suffer from the same issue. So um, they do undergo aging. Um, I do know that there are some people that are studying kind of the molecular aspects that are associated with aging in mammalian species, such as humans, and none of that work is published yet. So I don't really feel comfortable kind of talking about that because it's not from my own lab. But um, it, it looks like things are 
similar but different. I know that's a terrible answer. <laughs> um, but to get kind of circle it back to regeneration, my lab is working on that um, a little bit. We have a smaller project that's related to that. And it was really based on kind of the general observation that it takes a lot longer for axolotl to regenerate their limbs um, when they're older. And you know, I think the question that I had was because axolotls are an indefinitely growing species and, you know, regenerating a limb on a tiny animal that has a tiny little limb probably is different from regenerating limb on an older animal that has a huge limb because there's just a lot more tissue to regenerate, right? And so when we first started out, we wanted to see if if that were the case. And so we leveraged a special kind of surgery tool that we do in the lab. It's uh, called the accessory limb assay. And essentially what we do is um, we can we can induce a regenerative response on a limb kind of by tricking the limb into thinking it's been amputated. And we make a small wound site on the side of the arm. We um, sever a nerve and we deviate that nerve to the middle of the wound site. And then we graft tissue from the opposite side of the limb into the wound site. So we have kind of the three basic components, the three, three rules, as you would say, to what, uh, what you need to fulfill to be able to regenerate a limb. And we were able to use that particular, um, oh, and I should say that like when you have those three components, you basically get an entire limb that grows from that wound site. Um, and so what we were able to do is to make the same sized wounds, um, which we would never be able to do with just amputating the limb on young animals and old animals and compare the regenerative rate. And when we do that, we actually see that even though now we've controlled for the size of the wound, so it's exactly the same size, the old animal still does it much more slowly. I mean, it's delayed by weeks and weeks. Um, so so there must be some other reason why it takes the older animals to regenerate, um, you know, why it takes them longer to regenerate than the younger animals. And I mean, we're still really at like the early stages of just kind of characterizing these differences. We're also looking at um, the rate of um, of skin regeneration straight up, like not even the limb, just how does the skin regenerate? And they're even at that, even with the same amount or a same size wound, there is a big difference between the, the um, completion of the process of skin regeneration in the old animals compared to the young animals. Um, so the reasons why are still unknown, but it's definitely a thing. <laughs> so just like humans, they lose regenerative ability as they age. Um, and, and so I, you know, I think that that's kind of exciting because it tells us that the axolotl might be a really cool model to use to understand how aging impacts regenerative processes, um, because, you know, this is something that impacts humans as well. Yeah, it's interesting how... how geriatric medicine, the, the the practice of medicine on, on senior citizens, older people, just how much things like, he, like healing and your ability to recover from an injury or wound, just how dramatically different that is from, say, uh, you know, pediatrics or, you know, people who are, are younger to middle age. It, it, it really is fascinating. I'm curious, though, how do you, I guess, how do I phrase this? How, how do you determine what old age is for an axolotl, meaning for, for human beings, it can, it can vary to some extent, but 
I mean, is there a certain age where you say, all right, this axolotl is old, or does it is it more of a kind of like an arbitrary definition based on how it, it, it responds to, um, you know, I guess whatever environmental cues or how it heals from amputations? Like, how do you determine when an axolotl is old? Yeah, well, we, we actually don't have a good measure of that yet. So we know how long they live for, at least in captivity. So we can maybe kind of base it on that. But I think at this point, none of us scientists have the guts to say, this is the time point when an axolotl is considered elderly, so to speak. So we don't, we don't have that worked out because I think, you know, it, keeping an animal around for 25 years to do molecular biology on it is a really long time. And like, you know, none none of us have been around long enough to do that. And the people that were around long enough were busy with other questions, you know? Um, So, so we haven't really been able to answer that question. Um, But I'll tell you kind of what, how we're addressing that um, in my lab. So all of the studies that we're doing aging on, we're basically comparing differences in regenerative rates in young adults. So these are sexually mature adults. So they'd be like a year or slightly older than that compared to the oldest animals that we would have in my colony. And right now the oldest animals we have are about six and a half years. And we know that there are some age related changes in these animals because they, uh, for example, the females are, are no longer, you know, making good clutches of, um, of offspring when we breed them. And so we, and we also can see, I mean, really, you know, obvious differences in, in the, their physical, you know, appearance. So they're way bigger than the younger animals. And you can definitely see like differences in their skin. So the young animals have very tight skin and the old animals, just like humans, have kind of floppy skin. So, you know, there are these kind of visible differences, but we don't, you know, at this point, we don't really have like a really distinct set of criteria to say this is an old animal. Like at this point, we know that it's old. So we can just really compare a young adult versus the oldest adults that we have in my colony and just compare differences, you know, during that process of aging. But as you know, aging is a, is a process, right? It's not something that it's just a a light switch is turned off and now you're old. Um, You know, it's something that creeps up on you (laughs) over many, many, many years. Um, And, and, you know, so I think, I think it's probably one of those things that um, the community will eventually have to agree upon, um, you know, once we get more data, but, but it's going to take a long time to get that data because it's a big investment to grow up animals for that long. Um, So yeah, we'll see down the road. It will happen. Yeah. It's just one of those things I was always curious about how you quantify. I mean, just for, I mean, it's, it's obviously this is apples and oranges. It's not an axolotl, but I have a California king snake whom I've had for 20 years. It's 2022. I've had him for 20 years. And he basically looks the same now as he did, eight, you know, 18 years ago when he reached adulthood. So I often ask myself, well, how do I know he's old? You know, and I know that they can live yeah. to be 40, if not 40 years, if not longer, especially in captivity. But I ask myself, you know, when does a non-mammalian animal become old? You know what I mean? Like, when when do you make that definition? But you're right. It must be extremely difficult, especially in especially in in uh, non-mammalian uh, vertebrates because they don't seem to show the same exterior signs as I guess right. you know many of us do yeah and and you know a lot of them at least the ones that we we study live for a really long time so those types of studies are kind of a pain and you know what so yeah 
when you say a long time, how long is a long time? Well, I mean, I, I think it's a long time relative to the time that it takes to survive being a scientist and publishing and getting your grants, right? So like to you to be able to get grants to fund our research, and I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but to, um, to get the grants that fund all the research that we do, we have to get papers to, you know, show that we're, we're making a product, you know, from this and we're sharing it with the world so that everybody can benefit from it. Um, and, you know, so you have to be really conscientious of how long it takes you to do the experiments that you need to do to, you know, get, be able to put together a story that you can share. Um, so if you have to wait around for years and years and years for the animals to get to the stage, you know, or the age, so to speak, of what you want them to be, um, it's just, you know, it's not feasible in the long run uh, to survive as a lab. So there are lots of other models um, that people use to study aging that have a much shorter lifespan. But the problem is, is that not a lot of them are regenerative models. Um, and so I think, you know, it, it, it maybe the axolotl is not the best regenerative model to study aging, you know, at least to get at the nitty gritty of it, just because it takes so long. But because it's such a powerful, um, you know, regenerative model, like I think maybe we could extract lessons from other regenerative models that that age way faster um, than the axolotl and maybe see if we can apply those to to the axolotl model afterwards. But, Where would you like to be in 10 years um, with what you're working on now? Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to predict <laughs> because the, you always have these ideas of like where your research is going to be. And of course, you need to plan it out to get grants. Um, but then, you know, everything can change in a weekend when you get that result that disproves your major hypothesis that you had. <laughs> so it is hard to predict. Um, but I think, you know, my major goals right now are to 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 one, um, figure out the molecular mechanism um, and the source of instruction that regulates the growth and the overall size of the regenerating limb. And um, then I also wanna figure out how signals from that regenerative environment um, induce those changes in the mature limb cells that make them capable of regenerating. And we're already really getting into um, how that's happening. And so I, I, we understand the signals that are required in that environment. We have like a cocktail of growth factors that we can use to make those changes happen. Um, and at this point, we're trying to figure out how those signals actually induce these changes and what those changes actually are. And I think it's well within our grasp to really understand, um, you know, what it means to be and an old cell that becomes a young cell. Um, so that's, that's I think, down the road for us. And then I'm sure we'll, we'll find ourselves busy with lots of other things that, that emerge. Um, so we'll see. It's fascinating stuff. Well, Kate, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. And I, I mean, again, just I'm so unfamiliar with all this stuff. It was really fascinating to have you talk to us and um, explain all this because it's something I've been, always been interested in for such a long time. But for the life of me, I was never, I was never really uh, 
in any way knowledgeable about it. So I want to thank you for sharing all your um, all your expertise and, uh, and walking us through the whole process. I'm curious if anyone out there and the listeners wanted to find out more about you or your research, how would they go about doing that? Um, so if you go to the UMass Boston um, biology faculty website, you'll find me on the list of biology faculty. Um, my email is right there, my contact information, and there's also a link to the lab website. And so you can see a little bit more about what we do, the people that are in the lab. There's some links to some papers there and so forth. Um, my door is open and I love connecting with people um, I also want to plug my virtual um, lab tours that I do for uh, K through 12 students uh, anywhere in the world. I am open to that. And, um, you know, so anybody can get in touch with me and, and I'm open to chatting. That's great. Well, listen, I want to thank Kate again for coming on the show. And of course, I want to thank all of you out there for listening. And it's been a really enlightening episode. I, I, I love learning new stuff. And this is one of those things that I've been, and I keep saying it, I've been looking to cover for such a long time. And I'm really happy that I did. And uh, it was real great of Kate to come on the show. So other than that, I want to thank all of you guys for listening as usual. Catch up with you next time. <laughs>